0: The problem today is that most Christians uh, are living subnormal lives. It's not normal not to share your faith. The new first century church knew nothing about only certain people sharing their faith. Every Christian had owned the Great Commission. They saw it as theirs, and they went gossiping the gospel wherever they went.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Broge. Dr. Brogy is Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the book of Romans, we've moved into chapter 6 and have begun to look at the life of the believer. In verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul, having completed a discourse on God's superabounding grace, now asks the question, if God's grace is so amazing, ought we not to continue bad behavior to further prove His good grace? And, of course, the answer is a resounding no. Last week, we went back to chapter 3 and began to look at four objections Paul's opponents raised to his teaching on salvation. As we pick up, we look at the fourth objection, that through our sin, God's glory and grace are magnified.
0: It's about this time some of the critics would say, okay, Paul, if this is the way it is with the grace of God, if God's grace operates in this way, if we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, then your doctrine of free salvation encourages lawlessness and sin. And so in anticipation of what some of his critics would think, he asks the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, Paul's critics have already slandered him. Hold your finger here. Go back to chapter 3, just a few pages to where you are, and look in chapter 3. If you remember, um, Paul is uh, using a literary method called diatribe. We saw that that was a common philosophical method of argument that was used in the first century, largely by pagans. Paul uses it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to reason spiritual truth. And diatribe is basically where you have an imaginary dialogue with the students or the critics, first positing their position and then answering it. And so if you remember in Romans 3, 1 through 8, he dealt with four basic objections that his opponents would have to his teaching on salvation. And the Lord raised a number of these objections in his public ministry. You can read about them in the Gospels. Paul would have raised them himself when he opposed the church before his conversion. And as a Jew who went to the Jew first and then to the Greek, he would have heard them habitually in the synagogues where he went to try to win his Jewish brethren to faith. And they come up with some really pretty warped way of thinking. And that's not surprising because before you're saved, the natural mind does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. The unregenerate, unsaved mind thinks the way the world thinks. And we have some preachers who have built some of the largest churches in the country who are appealing on the basis of uh, prosperity and health and good feelings, who will say nothing about sin. What are they doing? They are appealing to the natural mind. So Joel Osteen will not speak about sin. Why? Because he's a false prophet. But people in our day are so blind to basic theology, they don't even say it. So Paul had his critics, men and women who did not have the mind of Christ. And if you look at verse 8 of chapter 3, he dealt with his fourth objection. And why not say, as we slanderously, report, uh, slanderously reported and as some claim we say, let us do evil that good may come. You see what the critics were saying? They were saying, if through my falsehood and if through my unfaithfulness God's truth shines all the more then how can God possibly judge me for sinning? And at this point, Paul doesn't really answer his critics. All he says is their condemnation is just. So this kind of reasoning is the same kind of reasoning that is prevalent here in the 21st century. There are people who will say, oh, you evangelical Christians. You teach once you're saved, you're saved forever. That once you're saved, there's nothing you can do to sever this wonderful salvation. You are encouraging people just to get saved so they can go out and live like the devil. It's not unusual if you preach the gospel of grace to be slandered like the apostle Paul was slandered. People in Paul's day were saying, Paul, you teach, let sin all the more that God's grace might be seen all the more. And Paul says, that's ridiculous. The righteousness of God is never displayed in sin. And so he just simply says here, their condemnation is just, doesn't answer them. Now he's going to begin to answer them back here in chapter 6. He's going to address their charge head on, and by the time he's done, they will not have a leg to stand on. Now let me just say, what, what they did with Paul and what they do with pastors, they'll do with you. If you will faithfully share the gospel. The problem today is that most Christians are not sharing their faith. The problem today is that most Christians uh, are living subnormal lives. It's not normal not to share your faith. The new first century church knew nothing about only certain people sharing their faith. Every Christian had owned the Great Commission. They saw it as theirs, and they went gossiping the gospel wherever they went. It is subnormal, not to share your faith. But if you become normal and you start sharing your faith, you'll be viewed as abnormal. But if you become normal and start gossiping the gospel and you consistently, faithfully share the plan of salvation, there are gonna be some people who will slander you. That's the way it happens. And so there are people today who will reason, oh yes, Pastor Carl, I've heard about you. I've heard how you say there's nothing you can do to earn heaven, that it is simply the free gift of God. You are encouraging people to get saved and then to go out and sin all they want to. And they'll say, if I believed what you teach, I'd sin all I want to. I tell them, well, I sin all I want to, and I don't want to because I have a new want to on the inside. When you have an encounter with the grace of God, things begin to change. And so Paul asks here, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Now again, remember these chapter and verse divisions are artificial. He's just said where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. A young man met with his pastor in his early 20s. And he called him up one evening and he said, Pastor, I need to speak with you. Can we have breakfast? So the next morning he met. And he said, I had a moral failure in my life. I was on a business trip and I committed adultery. What do you say, Pastor? The pastor thought about this young man. He thought about the children that this young man had, and he said, well, before I respond, I want to ask you some questions. Would you pray and ask God to forgive you, understanding that true repentance involves a change of attitude and action? Would you be willing to go to that woman woman to say, I will never see you again. The relationship is forever broken off. And would you be willing to go to your wife who has three children and is pregnant with the fourth and ask her to forgive you? And would you be willing to have a HIV test to see if you have any kind of sexually transmitted disease or the like in order to protect and guard your wife? When the pastor was finished, the young man said, Pastor, I didn't come here to hear you ask me all these questions. I came here today to find some grace. He would be what we would call an antinomian. Now, if you told that young man he was antinomian, he'd probably say, what's that? But that's a term that you should know that has been well used since the time of the Protestant Reformation where the reformers were accused of being antinomian. Anti, here on the screen, if you bring it up, is a Greek word that means against. Nomos is the Greek word for law, literally against the law. Antinomianism, meaning against the law, is the belief in theological terms where you say, because I am saved, I can live however I want to live. And that's what Paul is dealing with here in verse one. And evangelicals are often accused of being antinomian since you're saved by grace that it encourages sin. But that's not true. That's not true of real conversion because real conversion brings about a genuine change. Now, I'm sure that few of us here today would fall into the category of antinomianism. But understand, the church has more people than they probably care to admit. In every generation, and I know that with a sense of dogmatism, because Jesus tells me that. In Matthew 7, at the end of the great Sermon on the Mount, where he brings it in for a conclusion, he doesn't deal with all the various isms of the world when he talks, broad is the way, wide is the gate that leads to hell, narrow is the way, small is the gate that leads to heaven. He's dealing with those who say they are Christians. And he doesn't go for just some average ho-hum testimony. Very often the Lord Jesus would use hyperbole to underscore his point. He goes for a fantastic testimony. Those will say, we preached in your name. We cast out demons in your name. We did miracles in your name. And he will say to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And so our churches today, we have people who join churches, who sing in the choir, who serve in Sunday school, who are no different from the people of the world. If the truth were known, many of them have a hidden life where they will not let anyone really know what's going behind the scenes. But then there are people in our churches today who very publicly do these kinds of things, who very publicly sin, and they don't really care because their church doesn't care. And there's no such thing as church discipline. And so there are people who say, I'm a Christian, and they dress, and they drink, and they joke, and they watch, and they work, just like the average pagan does. In Jude's words, he described them in this way. For certain people have crept in, meaning into the church, unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness. That is a license to sin. That's what he's dealing with here in the opening verse. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Where sin piled up, grace increased all the more. It's superabounded. And so Paul is anticipating this objection. Now, Paul tells us when he writes to young Titus what the grace of God really does. In Titus 2, 11 and 12, he said, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And we learned in the last chapter where we deal with the doctrine of limited atonement, a false teaching that Jesus didn't die for all, but just for some, that all means all and that that's all that all can mean. He died for all men. But just because he made a provision for all men doesn't mean that all men will be saved because he goes on instructing us, that is believers, those who respond to this salvation, to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So the grace of God puts you into a classroom where it teaches you to live a different kind of lifestyle. And so here's the critics. Critics. Paul, you're saying salvation by grace, and if you're logical in that doctrine, Paul, then you're encouraging sin. So that's the initial reaction. Notice the response here, Roman numeral 2 in your outline in the beginning of verse 2. He answers simply, May it never be. Meganoita. He's trying to drive it home, and the emotion is so strong in the original, virtually every English translation translates it differently. The NAS says here, may it never be. Another says, absolutely not. Another says, of course not. Another says, not at all. Another says, by no means. Another says, perish the thought. Another says, don't be ridiculous. Perhaps the most interesting is the Phillips translation that renders the Greek with the word, what a ghastly thought. If my dad were translating it, he would say, don't even think about it. That's what false teachers think. This is what they think, that you can live however you want once you are saved by grace. And Paul says that's a perversion of grace. Or again, in the words of Jude, they're turning the grace of God into licentiousness. Before we're done with this section, he's going to show us that the grace of God brings us under a new master out of the reign of death and sin into the reign of life. So having described their reaction to his gospel of grace in verse 1 and their initial response here in verse 2, may it never be, now he gives his refutation beginning here in the second part of verse 2 in the form of a question. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? One of my professors, my favorite professor at Dallas Seminary was Dr. Dwight Pentecost. I mean, what a name for a seminary professor, Dr. Pentecost. We affectionately called him Dr. P. He's still teaching at Dallas Seminary in his 57th year. He's 93 years old. And I remember him relating to us a story that I will never, ever forget. And it coming from Dr. P, I knew it to be a true story. It took place in 1910 in the state of Alabama with a woman who was married to a man 20 years older than her. And she married him, I guess, for the wealth because he was an extremely wealthy man and a very manipulative man, a very rough man with her. And he told her as he lay dying that when I die, I want you to embalm me and put me in a chair and build a glass case around me. And I want you to set me in the foyer of our mansion. And of course, he threatened her, she being somewhat superstitious, he said, I'll come back and I'll haunt you. So when he died, she literally had him embalmed, had a glass case built around this man. She'd come in, hello, honey, how you doing? Of course, no response but she was afraid of him, even a dead man. She went off for a whirlwind uh, vacation to Europe, and there in Europe she met a man whom she quickly fell in love with and married, and she came back to the States. They went into their beautiful mansion there in Alabama, and being the man that he was, wanting to take his new bride and carry her over the threshold, he carried her over the threshold, opened the door, and there was her former husband, and he literally dropped his bride. He said, who's that? That's my former husband. Your former husband, that's him? Well, oh, I forgot to tell you. He made me promise that I embalm him and put him in this chair. And she began to relate the story and all that she had went through with her former husband. And he said, honey, he's a dead dude. We're going to bury him today. And I'm your new husband. That's the point Paul is trying to make here. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? You're under a new manager, under a new master, under a new husband, as he will say in the seventh chapter. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, in that question, there are effectively three questions that are being asked. Three questions that will stop us in our tracks if we really ponder them. Have you forgotten what has happened to you? That's question number one. Question number two, have you forgotten who you are? Question number three, have you forgotten where you belong? Let's take them one at a time. First, have you forgotten what has happened to you? Look again in verse two. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Have you forgotten, in other words, have you forgotten that you've died to sin? Paul is saying you don't wanna go around sinning anymore because you've died to sin. Now this whole idea of being dead to sin is a theme that runs all the way through the chapter. I haven't underlined it throughout my Bible here. We just read it in that verse. If you look again in verse uh, three, he says all of us have been baptized into his death. Underscore that. Look in verse four. We have been buried with him through baptism into death. Underline that word. Verse five, we've become united with him in the likeness of his death. Verse seven, for he who has died is freed from sin. Verse eight, we have died with Christ. And finally, if you will notice verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. Over and over and over again, he speaks of our death to sin, that we have died with sin. Listen, you can't get any deader than that. He's really underscored it here. So with that, we need to ask, what does Paul mean when he says that we have died to sin. I mean, we still struggle with sin. How is it that I am dead to sin? And so let me give you four interpretations as to how people have handled this. Three that I think are in error, and one that is certainly correct, that most conservative Bible teachers ascribe to myself included. One view says it's a common misconception, not too broad, but the internet is filled with websites with people who still teach it, I checked this week, who say that when a man gets saved, that his sin nature is eradicated, that his sin nature dissolves. It's sheer nonsense, but there are still some crazies out there who teach this, that once you truly get saved, you will never, ever, ever again sin that doesn't match experience, nor does it match what Scripture says. In 1 John 1.8, he says, if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. In the same chapter, in verse 10, he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So, the Bible is very clear that we've sinned, And we do sin. Now, they have a warped explanation for those verses, just like I showed you. Some of the limited redemptionists have a warped explanation as to why Jesus didn't die for all. But in 1 John 1, 9, remember he's writing to believers, save people. If we, Christians, confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not written to lost people, but to save people, that they might have fellowship with John, and his fellowship was with the father and with his son. But people sometimes take this view, and they blend verse 2 with verse 6. If you look down at verse 6 in the body of the text, Paul talks there about our body of sin might be done away with. The Old English of the King James says, and this is where they usually milk it from, that our body of sin might be destroyed. But letting Scripture interpret Scripture, the Bible is very clear, and he'll underscore it in Romans 7 that Christians still sin. Now, sanctification is a process. And between the point of justification and the point of glorification, glorification happens when Jesus comes back, and in a moment's time, in the twinkling of an eye, You are made into the image of Christ and your sin nature is forever gone and you get a resurrected body. But between the point of sanctification and glorification, there's the process called sanctification, between justification and glorification. And God wants us to grow in that time. And there are some things that we can do that we'll see in a moment that we can slow it down. But the fact is, is that between those two points, believers still sin. That's going to be Paul's testimony when we come to Romans 7. Now, I don't know about you, but I've received the gift of God's righteousness, and with the gift of that righteousness came the gift of God the Holy Spirit to indwell me, and he made me alive. But like Paul, I recognize that nothing good dwells in me, as he'll say in, a little bit later in verse 18, that is in my flesh, in 718. I still have my fallen Adamic nature. It's still very much alive. Though I think if I ever meet one of these people face to face, I'd like to spit in their face just to see how spiritual their reaction would be. Or maybe at least interview someone who really knows them well to think if that person thinks they're sinless, and they usually say, well, these aren't sins, these are just, you know, mistakes, okay. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, another view, and again, the reason I only mention that is because there's crazies all over the internet who Propose that point of view. Secondly, another view is that some people have taught that when you get saved, that death to sin, that you've died to sin, means that sin has lost its allurement. They say once you get saved, I mean really saved, that sin loses its appeal. And every once in a while, you'll hear someone give a testimony in essence to that effect. They'll say, well, I used to drink, but God saved me. I never wanted to touch a drop of alcohol again. Or I used to sleep around with women, but I got saved and I never wanted to do that again. Or I used to beat my wife, but I got saved and I never wanted to lay a finger on her again. Listen, that is not only inaccurate, it's dishonest, and it's less than biblical. And I hear people being paraded across our evangelical platforms with that empty testimony. (laughs) And everybody, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah, yeah and they don't know their Bibles. Now, I'm not saying that it's impossible that when a man gets saved that he will never touch a drop of alcohol again. But to say that if a man's been saved out of that background and the allurement is forever gone is deceptive, inaccurate, and not true to Holy Scripture. Now, by God's grace, I rarely ever get sick. I've been your pastor almost 23 years. I've never missed a Sunday because of sickness. Now, there have been a couple Sundays, I have to admit, where I came sick and between services I threw up, but still, (laughs) uh, I rarely get sick. Now, about a year ago, my wife introduced to me something called spaghetti squash. And I just fell in love with it. I thought, man, this is fantastic. I'd never had spaghetti squash in my whole life. It's like when I moved south. I had never had black-eyed peas before I moved south. I had never had okra before I moved south. Um, spaghetti sauce, fantastic. Uh, spaghetti uh, squash, let's have it. And I enjoyed it. And she would make it for me. And one day I caught a bug, and I threw up that spaghetti sauce, a uh, squash, all night long. I mean, it was miserable. That was about four months ago. And just to smell it today, still disgusting to me. Don't serve it, I said to her. I don't even want to say it. Now, I'm sure, given enough time, I'll want that again. And that's kind of the way it is with sin. Sometimes people get saved, and they are so disgusted with their past they think, I never, ever, 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 ever want to do that again. But the lure of sin is not dissolved. That's not what Paul is referring to when he says we have died to sin. Most of you have 1 Corinthians 10, 13 memorized. You should know it. No temptation is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you might be able to endure it. It's a good verse. One of a hundred, every Christian should know. But you should also learn the preceding verse when you memorize it. 1 Corinthians ten twelve. let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. And it's preceded with the word therefore, in light of what I've just said in verses one through 11, where God highlighted Israel's failure, written for our example, for our instruction. He says, therefore, let him who thinks he stands be careful lest he fall. The allurement for sin does not dissolve. Paul will say in the seventh chapter, for the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not wish. Wretched man that I am, who will free me from this body of sin and death?
1: To listen again to today's study from Romans 6, verses 1 and 2, entitled Freedom to Sin, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for Android and iOS devices? They are free and available through your respective app stores. Of course, you can always listen online at searchthescriptures.org. And if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, feel free to call 877-787-7478 and request program ROM27, entitled Freedom to Sin. We're rapidly approaching the deadline to sign up for the Search the Scriptures trip to Israel. Join Dr. Brogy for an 11-day trip to the Holy Land this coming May. Because of health and safety issues, the registration deadline is February 11th. Get all the details online at stsisraeltour.com. Join us again tomorrow when we conclude our message, Freedom to Sin, as we search the Scriptures.